Welcome to Practical Christian Living. What God reveals to Jesus, what the Father reveals to Jesus as he's on the cross is that he is dying for the nation of Israel. That it is for these people that are his people that he has been ministering to in Galilee and Jerusalem for the last three years. It's for them that he's dying. Yes, Jesus died for his chosen people, Israel, but he also died for the rest of us, his adopted beloved. Now more than ever is the time for us to shine as bright as we can as the light of Christ in this world because of what he did for us. If you've grown weary in running or are no longer shining for Jesus as you once did, it's our prayer that you would remember what he did for you, that you would see God's hand reaching out to you today, that you would allow him to pick you up and wrap his loving arms around you and get back in the race. With more out of Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 3, and also a stop in Psalm 22, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. The strongest drive that you have is the drive to breathe. And to, on the cross, it takes away the ability to breathe. So you have to pull yourself up on the cross or push yourself up by your feet in order to breathe. When the Romans wanted to cause someone to live longer, they would give them a step under their foot or they would nail their feet to the step so you could lift up on the step. Or if they really wanted them to last a long time, they would put a seat on the cross so the person could sit on that seat and then they might be able to last for days and end up dying from exposure. But if you were crucified without a seat or without a step, you were not going to die of exposure. You were gonna go through a writhing, painful death where your body would slump forward, it would crush your chest, you couldn't breathe, and the drive for breath became so strong that you would endure the pain of pushing up on the nails in your feet and pulling yourself up on the nails in your hands in order to take the next breath. Jesus didn't have to go through the cross. You remember that when Peter pulled out the sword to fight the arresting party, Jesus said, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that I could call a legion of angels to help me right now? Not only do I think that he could have called a legion of angels, I think there was a legion going, let us go, let us go, let us do this. That heaven watched the Son of God be beaten, scourged, and crucified. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. When they laid that cross down on the ground and they laid him on it and they took his hands out to crucify him, he didn't scream and fight it. He laid his hands out. How many different things do you think that detail of men, this wasn't the only guy they crucified. How many things do you think they had heard? They'd heard people plea. They'd heard people bribe. Listen, don't do this, man. I'm rich. I've got family. I've got money. Don't do this. I can get you money. If you let me go, I'll get you money. They'd heard curses, but I don't think they'd ever heard anybody say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus laid down his life and he endured that. In the garden, in fact, you remember that he prayed, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to do it because it was such a brutal form of torturous death. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now here's the question. Our text says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he despised the shame. What was the joy that was set before him? To answer that, turn with me to Psalms 22. 
take the ribbon of your Bible and put it there in Hebrews 12 because we will return to it. And then go and find Psalms. Psalms 22 is an interesting chapter. First of all, it's a Psalm of David. Realize that David wrote not the majority of the Psalms, but he wrote more of them than anyone else wrote. Psalms 22 is a Psalm of David and it is a prophetic Psalm. It is a Psalm that tells the future. Now, the Bible is an incredible document. The Bible is accurate geographically, which other ancient religious books are not. Historically, it's accurate. The more archaeology discovers, the more it discovers that it was accurate historically and geographically. It's accurate scientifically. It's not a scientific book, but when it ventures into the realm of science, it's accurate. You know, the Bible talks about hydrology, water evaporating up onto the mountains, raining back down and coming back down into the oceans. Thousands of years before men got a concept of what was really going on on the earth with hydrology and the way that water supplies itself through evaporations and storms and such, the Bible actually talks about it. It's accurate geographically, historically, scientifically, and prophetically. And that's maybe the most impressive. In other words, when the Bible ventures to tell the future, it tells it accurately. Do you know that the Bible says that in the last days that God would cause the nation of Israel that had not been a nation to be a nation again? And do you know that we are living in the days when Israel has become a nation? Do you know that for 2,000 years, from 66 AD until 1947, that Israel was not a nation? And the land of Israel was destroyed just as the Bible said it would be? And then God said, in the last days, I will cause the nation of Israel to be born again in a day. We are living in the last days. People say to me, do you think we're living in the last days? Yep. Because Israel is a nation again, and God foretold that it would happen. And we're living in those days. Not only did the Bible say that Israel was going to become a nation again, but that it was going to become the center of conflict for the earth, that armies were going to surround Israel. Do you also know that the Bible prophesies a conflict in Syria and a destruction of Damascus in the last days? All right? So we're seeing all of these prophetic things the Bible talks about coming to pass. Well, Psalms 22 is a prophetic passage but it's prophetic in a different way. It's not talking about Israel or what's taking place. It's, it's talking about crucifixion. Psalms 22 is a document written a thousand years before the time of Christ and hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented. And get this, it is a first person account of crucifixion. What I mean by a first person account of crucifixion, it's not somebody watching somebody being crucified and writing about it. It's somebody who's being crucified talking about what's going on in their mind. How would you ever find anything like that? It could only be God prophetically giving it to David or it's somebody that was rescued from crucifixion that wrote this psalm. It's someone who was crucified. We're gonna read, they pierced my hands and my feet. Not only is this a first person account of a crucifixion, but it starts off with Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani in the Hebrew. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with he has done it or literally it is finished. This is not only a first person account, but it is us being able to get into the mind of Jesus from the time he cried out, God, why are you forsaking me? Until he said, it is finished. Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. He had been beaten, he'd been scourged, and then he had been crucified. And I believe that he went into shock. And emotionally, he struggled 
Why isn't God rescuing me? And God answers that prayer. That's in essence what you find in Psalms 22. A guy who's being crucified, who asks to be rescued, and God says no, and then gives him why, okay? Now remember, what are we looking for? What is the reason for the joy that was set before him, all right? So let's read Psalm 22. I'm in Proverbs, by the way, so let me get to Psalms. I'm not gonna go into great detail as I make my way through here. I'll make a few comments, but I wanna pretty much just read through this. It starts off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible tells us that Jesus became sin on the cross. And there was some kind of a separation for the first time ever between him and the Father. And I think at that point, Jesus wondered, why are you separated from me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? You remember that we're going to see he's going to be asking for help to be rescued from the cross. And from the words of my groaning, my God, I cry in the daytime and you do not hear and in the night season and am not silent. Remember that Jesus was crucified at nine in the morning and at noon, a great darkness fell over the earth. And not only is that darkness recorded in the Bible, but do you know that there are secular writings of a darkness around 32, 33 AD? There was a darkness at noon that other people wrote about. Doesn't just say it here, it actually happened. And during this dark moment when the Messiah was being crucified, God shut the lights off. God brought a darkness. Now, some people say it was, you know, it was this volcano or that volcano or that was the darkness that came upon the earth, whatever. If God used that, whatever. But God brought a supernatural darkness. And here, this man who's being crucified says, I cry out to you in the daytime and at the nighttime and you don't hear. He says, but you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you and were delivered and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. He says, you've delivered Israel. He's asking to be delivered. He says, but I am a worm and no man. Now, why would he call himself a worm? The word for worm here is a worm that was used to crush. And when you crushed it, it produced a red ooze. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. When you crushed it, they became red and they would use these crushed worms to dye garments red. It's the way that they dyed crimson garment in their day. Jesus uses that word. He looks at his body, he sees the blood and he says, I am one of these red worms and not a man, a reproach of a man despised by people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and they shake their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus when they crucified him. And he says, but you are he who took me out of the womb and made me to trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. The strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. They put a spear in Jesus' side and water and blood came out. All my bones are out of joint. Literally, the shoulder bones would come out of joint of the crucified person because of the way that the body hung against the arms. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. The pressure in the chest, the pressure around the heart was greatly increased during crucifixion. 
My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. Jesus said, I thirst. You have brought me to the dust of death for the dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet and I can count all of my bones. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Do you remember that this is exactly what happened to Jesus? That the detail of the four Roman soldiers divided the clothing among them, the different pieces of clothing. But when they came to the last piece, the robe, there was no way to tear it because it was all woven in one piece. And so they gambled for it. Here we have, in my mind, no doubt that this is Jesus on the cross and that he is struggling with why he is not being rescued. He is in shock emotionally. He's calling out for God to help him. And in fact, that's exactly where he goes in verse 19. He says, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, do any of you guys have the King James Version that says unicorn? Save me from the horn of the unicorn. Okay, there, there were no unicorns. All right. The, even though the people who wrote the King James Bible thought there were, there weren't. And the word in the Hebrew is oxen. Okay. So that was just a thing with the King James Bible. And by the way, if you're a King James only person, if you believe that those guys were anointed by God to write the Bible, then you got a problem with the unicorn. Okay. You're going to have to deal with it. I don't know if you believe in unicorns or not. But once again, I'm on a sidetrack. Let's go back to the, the passage. What's he asking in, in 19, 20, and 21? Look at verse 21 again. Save me. Deliver me, verse 20. Don't be far from me, my strength. Hasten to help me. He says, help me, deliver me, save me. He's asking to be delivered from the cross at this point. And then at the end of verse 21, it has this simple phrase, you have answered me. If you're taking notes today or you've got a pen or a pencil or a highlighter, then highlight those words. You have answered me. That is the key to understanding Psalms 22. You have answered me. What was the answer that God gave him? Look at verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. That's the nation of Israel. He says, in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. What God reveals to Jesus, what the father reveals to Jesus as he's on the cross is that he is dying for the nation of Israel. That it is for these people that are his people that he has been ministering to in Galilee and Jerusalem for the last three years. It's for them that he's dying but it doesn't stop there. He goes on to verse 25. My praises shall be of you in the great assembly. The great assembly is a reference to the, the people who are Jewish by birth, the people of Israel who are Jewish in religion by birth and people who are Gentiles who are Jewish by choice. There were two groups of people that were around during the days of Jesus who were Jewish. Those who were Gentiles and became Jewish and those who were Israelites who were born Jewish. The great assembly is made up of both of them. So not only did he think of his brethren in Israel, but he thought of all of the Gentiles who had become Jewish. But not only that, look at verse 27. 
All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations. The word nations there is Gentiles. He turns from Israel to the great assembly, to the nations, to the Gentiles, that he is dying upon the cross. What's the Bible say? He died once for all. And here it's going through that list. It goes on in verse 29 and says, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. He died for rich people. All those who go down to the dust shall bow down before him. All of those who are poor or struggling, even those who cannot keep themselves alive, even those who are on the edge of death. He goes on, a posterity, verse 30, serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. Not only is he talking about Israel, the great assembly, and the Gentiles, and the poor, and the rich, but he's talking about the next generation. As he's upon the cross, it is now he's being reminded that he's dying for all people, not only of this generation, but for generations to come. And it ends with the thought of those who have not been born yet. Look at verse 31. Those will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. In other words, the joy that was set before him, the reason that he endured the cross was you. You and me and all of the people through all of time that have come to eternity because of Jesus. He endured the cross. He despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. And that joy is you and me. Now remember, the whole purpose of Hebrews is to encourage those who are weary and those who are discouraged. What's the reason that we should keep running the race? Am, am I telling you today, listen, continue in the race because it's the best thing for you. Your life's going to get better. It's the best thing that you can do is to run in the race. It's great for your kids. It's great for your marriage. It's great for you. It's how you can be the most healthy, the most powerful, the most you know, emotionally healthy. Nope. I'm saying finish the race because there are people who need to come to Christ. And we need to be, we need to have a heart for the sin sick people of the world, the people who are perishing. Lord, increase our heart for the lost. Give us a heart for them. May we live our lives in such a way you have been called as a light to shine in front of your family, in front of your friends, in front of those who work. And they were the joy that was set before Jesus. Now turn with me back to Hebrews and we come to the last thing we're to consider here, and that is that he sat down by the right hand of the Father. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is it when someone sits down? When someone's doing a work and they sit down, generally they're done. When I was a kid and I was doing yard work, and I would quit in the middle of the yard work, and I'd go inside and turn on the TV and start and sit down, my dad had come in and make sure I got back up and got back to work. Jesus didn't sit down when the job was halfway done like your kids might do. He sat down when the job was done. In other words, we're just waiting. That's it. The battle has already been done. The fight is already won. The battle is ours. All we've got to do is finish. I, I like what Warren Wearsby used to say. He would say, we are not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory because the battle's already been decided. All we've got to do is be in the fight. That's it. We just got to get back in it. And again, it's not so that we can make our lives better as in Christianity being some kind of self-help or self-improvement philosophy. 
It's about a cause and a purpose. And if he is sat down, all we're doing is waiting for the race to be done. Now, we may be that last group that's alive when Jesus comes back for us. The Bible says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We are not all going to die, but some of us are going to be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye. Maybe that'll be us. And then maybe not. Maybe we are living during the last days. But remember, to God, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. So even though we're in the last days, it could go on for another hundred years. We may all go and die and be buried, but we want to run our race. We want to run it efficiently for the sake of those around us that are lost and perishing. I want to close with this. I talked about the Olympics some last week, and I had found this earlier, and I, and I wanted to close with it. It's kind of lengthy. I, I'm not going to read it completely. I'm just going to read a little bit here for the setting, and then I'm going to tell you what happened, all right? Um, this is just an article on the 2002 Winter Olympics. There were five finalists in the men's 1,000-meter skating race. And during the final lap, there were you know, five different people from five different countries, American, Chinese, Canadian, Korean, and Australian. The American and the Chinese were out front. This is the final, this is the race for the gold. They've had all their qualifying heats already done. Now they're racing for the gold. On the final lap, as they turned the corner, the American and the Chinese were out in front. Uh, the American was expected to win, by the way. He had had the best qualifying times. He was expected to win the gold. So the American and the Chinese are out in front. Behind, right behind them, is the Canadian and the Korean. And then 100 feet behind them is the Australian. He has absolutely no hope of winning. There's one lap left in this thing. He's 100 feet behind and he's done. Probably he knew that from the beginning, right? By the time you get to the last heat, you kind of know who the, you know, the ones are who are gonna win, right? And so as they're now coming around this last corner, an event happens. The Chinese skater bumps into the American, of course, knocks the American down, and they take out the Canadian and the Korean that are behind them. <laughs> and the guy who's 100 feet behind, the Australian, skates around them and crosses the finish line while he's yelling, I won the gold, I won the gold, I won the gold. Never in his wildest dreams do I think that he thought that he could win the gold. And he's, he's going around that last lap and those guys are 100 feet in front of him. I'm sure he's just going through the motions at this point. And then all of a sudden, maybe he even thought in his mind, maybe they'll fall down. I won the gold, I won the gold. Look, he won the gold because he was the only one to finish. He just finished the race. You can win the gold if you just finish the race. You're weary, you're discouraged. There's a cause. There's people who are perishing. May we have a heart for the lost and perishing that we would endure and we would even face the shame that we face for the sake of the joy for those who need Christ. Because if our lives are consumed for ourselves or for any other reason, what does it mean? May your life, may my life truly be consumed for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you again for the encouragement that we find here in the pages of Scripture. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take these truths and really speak to us. Lord, I pray for those that are weary and discouraged, maybe just worn out, just discouraged about their Christian walk, discouraged that they haven't been able to share you with people around them. And Lord, we pray that you would stir us up for endurance, 
that we would be those who would finish the race that you have called us to. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.